<clears throat> All right, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to come to that passage eventually, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your word. God, these words exalt you so much. I just ask you again that you do the same in our hearts. Help me, Lord, to proclaim your word faithfully and accurately for your glory. God, I just ask you for every person here, God, that you would give us soft, tender hearts, God, to hear your word, receive it, God, and see you in your glory. Help us during this time, Lord, to worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. If you don't know, we've been just coming through the book of Mark, and this is just where we landed today in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. I want to give you a quick idea of just the larger section that we're in. Dustin taught last week on chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to the end of chapter 4. So if you take chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to the end of chapter 4, then all the way through chapter 5, if you take that section... This is a section of Mark that Jesus is just exalted through miracles. He's just exalted through miracles. He's done many, many miracles in, in his life. He did that and while he was on the earth. And we have four of them recorded right here in that section from 435 to the end of chapter 5 in Mark. Uh, what Dustin taught on last week, which is 435 to 41, you can kind of see it there. He taught on, uh, it, was a, it shows the superiority of Jesus in the natural realm. That's what you see in that section that he taught on last week. And where we're at today, verse 1 through 20, is going to show the superiority of Jesus in the spiritual realm or the invisible spiritual realm as he cast out legions of demons. So what we see is Jesus is supreme over everything that you can see in the natural realm. And then we're going to see that. We saw that in what Dustin taught. And we're going to see that Jesus is supreme in everything that you cannot see in the invisible realm. And that's kind of where we're at today. And then it continues on through Mark 5 to show us miracles of Jesus. Now, let me start off by doing this. Um, there's a guy I just want to kind of tell you a quick story. Uh, Jerry Rankin, many of you know him, some of you don't. But Jerry Rankin grew up, uh, just like most of us did, in a West, Western-type culture. Uh, like most of us, he had a Western, rational worldview that kind of blocked him from, from seeing things like spiritual warfare. Uh, he, those things are kind of out of sight, out of mind. You can't see it. So he didn't think about it, okay? So the demonic realm or the spiritual uh, unseen realm, he didn't think about that that much, okay? Well, he reports, he wrote a book called Spiritual Warfare. This is Jerry Rankin, and he and his wife, Jerry and his wife, Bobby, they actually became missionaries at some point to Indonesia. And as missionaries in Indonesia, he recounts in his book this experience, a very interesting experience that he had that pretty much uh, played a big role in his life and to open up his eyes to spiritual warfare and get him to think about the unseen world, okay? And this experience is, a, is, is recorded in his book. Uh, what happened is they got there, and a few months into their time as missionaries in Indonesia, they, were, uh, they befriended a woman, and this woman is a Muslim woman. And in befriending this woman, one day she showed up, uh, wherever they were at, at their house or something like that. And she was very emotionally distraught. She was just very troubled. This woman that they had met there who was a Muslim, uh, they inquired as to what was going on. Uh, and what they found out is that she said that her daughter had been demon possessed. And so, you know, he's got this Western rationalistic mindset. I don't know what went through his mind at the moment, but, but you can imagine, okay? So she said that her daughter had been demon-possessed. Now, she was a Muslim, and she knew that Jerry was a, a Christian, and yet because of some sort of, she didn't know, she just needed some help, she asked him to come, him and his wife, to come and pray for her, to pray for her daughter, who she said had been demon-possessed. And they agreed to go, so they uh, didn't know what they were going to see here. They didn't know what they, were gonna, what they were stepping into, so they began to fast and pray for a few days. Now, I want to give you, an, I'm just going to read something out of his introduction of his book, first chapter, actually, of his book, that talks about that experience. So bear with me as I read through this with you. As we entered the house, so this is the house of the young girl who had been demon-possessed. As we entered the house, our eyes quickly adjusted from the bright sunlight to the darkened room. We found a beautiful teenager tied to the bamboo bed where she was sitting. Her clothes were torn, her hair was disheveled, and she was snarling like an animal. 
When we walked into the room, she glared at us and said in clear and perfect English, Jesus Christ is not God. Muhammad is servant of the Most High God. Well, okay, he says. That's an expected Muslim perspective. Uh, I didn't think anything about it until her mother told us on the way home that her daughter had lived in this remote village all her life and was uneducated and didn't speak English. And so they prayed for her. And this was, a, this was like a response. This was an experience in his life that kind of, uh, he, he actually prayed for her. There was actually no response at the time. He didn't know what to do, okay? So this was like a, a, a time of his life that kind of exposed him to thinking about an invisible spiritual realm. And, uh, and he had many other things like that. Now, here's what I want to do. And the reason why I'm bringing that up, because in Mark chapter 5, we're bumping into something like this. A man who is severely demonized in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. And we're going to get a view into the invisible spiritual realm. Now, before we do this, okay, on your sheet, it says introduction. Because I want to kind of set this up. I want to set up this passage we're going through. What I want to set up is I want you to see. I want to really press into all of us to see the big picture war. The cosmic war. You realize we're in, in a war, right? That, they're, that we battle, we, we wage war against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in this war, I want, I want to kind of broaden this out, see the big picture, and then we're going to take the, the section we're in in Mark chapter 5, and I want you to see a battle right there. Okay, I want you to see one battle in this big, massive war, and that battle will teach us a lot, okay? So let's start with the war. So right there on your, on your sheet where we're talking about the war, the war. There is an invisible spiritual realm. How aware are you? So let me just throw that out the front. How aware are you of this invisible spiritual realm? Just like Jerry Rankin, you've got the similar kind of background, a Western, rational thinking type culture that kind of pushes you to ignore these things, right? Well, in, in that, how aware are you of this invisible realm? Where, let's talk about where this invisible spiritual realm came from, okay? So I'm just going to throw some big things out there, then we're going to jump into our text, okay? Big things out here. Triune God. You have this massive God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. He is eternal. Our God, from He has no beginning. He has no end. He's an eternal God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. So He has no beginning or end. He's God. And then God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates things. Get this. Visible and invisible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through Him. And it says, Whether things in heaven or things on earth, it says whether visible or invisible. You know there's invisible things created by God? God created all things. Colossians 1.16. Alright, in Genesis 1.1, we have God created the heavens, He created the earth. Now, when He created the heavens, or sometime before, it seems that He created these angels. He created, he created a host or a multitudes of angels. And the reason why I say that is because when He laid the foundations of the earth, according to Job 38, verse 4 through 7, when He laid the foundation of the earth, the angels were there, and they were singing shouts of joy as God did that. According to Job 38, these angels, they're invisible spirits. Hebrews 1.14 calls them spirits. They're invisible spirits. Okay, so God creates, imagine it, multitudes of angels, and then he lays a foundation on earth, and they worship him as he does it. Now, how many angels does God create? How many angels does he create? Revelation 5.11 says 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, which I think means a lot. Hebrews 12.22 calls them innumerable, innumerable amounts of angels, more than the amount of people on the earth, angels. Think about it, don't you think? Innumerable amounts of angels. Now, how powerful. So you got these angels that God has created in this unseen world, and, and, and how powerful are they? How powerful are these angels? Second Chronicles chapter 32 shows one angel just destroying a whole army of men. They're very powerful. Daniel comes in the presence of an angel. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, comes in the presence of an angel, and they tremble with fear. They can't even speak. They can't even open their mouth. These angels are powerful. What's the purpose of these angels? Colossians 1.16, I just quoted to you, says they are for him. All things were created for him. They're for his glory. They're for his service. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels. 
who excel in strength. Oh, they're strong. Bless the Lord, you as angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. They serve him. These, these angels. So think with me. Okay, you got this invisible. Let's come out of this Western thinking that blocks us to the to the, the invisible world. Okay, so you've got God Almighty has created multitudes of angels. And where does Satan come from? Who is Satan? Satan is one of these created angels. And he's one of these created angels who actually rebelled against God. He's not equal to God. He's not equal to Jesus. He is a creation. He was created by God and he rebelled against God. And in his rebellion, he led a third of the angels in rebellion with him. God then cast Satan and his angels to the earth. And this all went down somewhere between the sixth day of creation when he said it was all good. In Genesis 3.1, when we see Satan on the scene. Listen to Revelation 12.9. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. You hear that? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. If you read Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, if you read Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, you see Satan as a created angel. He's created by God and his sin can be summarized as pride as he tries to exalt himself as an equal with God or exalt himself above God. So now we have Satan and his angels on this earth. Satan is the self-exalted ruler of armies of his angels, armies of demons. Fallen angels are called throughout the scriptures. Those who fail with Satan, they're called throughout the scriptures demons or unclean spirits. That's the kind of words we're going to see used in our passage today. Demons or unclean spirits. Matthew 25, 41 says there's an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. So how many? So the devil and his unclean spirits. How many are there? A third of them fell according to Revelation 12. What's a third of innumerable? It's a lot, right? A lot of them fail. In our passage today, there's thousands, there's, there's what's called a legion, thousands of demons in one man. There's a lot of them. You see how Satan can have such a vast effect on this earth. He has multitudes. He can have a vast effect because he has multitudes of demonic spirits that are with him. And they're very organized. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We've already got Satan as the ruler of demons, according to the scriptures. And Ephesians 6, 12 says they are, we wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it gives you these ranks almost, princes and rulers. It has ranks. They are very organized. They, and they are very, very evil and full of hate. When the most evil person in this world will look on you and maybe have some sort of pity and some moment of struggle you might have, they will not. They hate you and they'll press in harder to destroy you. They hate you. Satan and unclean spirits, they oppose God. The name Satan means adversary. They're opponents of God. And they seek to defame God, to dishonor God, to slander him. The word devil means slanderer. He's the slanderer. He seeks to dishonor and oppose God. And this is done in many different ways, not just what we're seeing here in Mark 5. In Mark 5, what we're going to read today in just a moment, where we had this very outward manifestation, severe exposing of Satan as somebody is controlled by demons. As we see that here, it's not always like that. That's not always the way, but he does do this, and he does, he does try to dishonor God in many ways. Lies, deceit, right? He comes as an angel of light, according to the scriptures, fear, temptations, even physical effects we see in the scriptures. So you have this cosmic battle. You see it? God and his and Satan and his. Remember, they're not equal. They're not equal. You have this cosmic warfare. And how did mankind get involved? How did we get involved in this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. We're not going to read it, but if you listen to me. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. It says that Satan tempts. He comes and he tempts man. And then man rebels against God with the same sin that was displayed in Satan. Pride. Reaching out their hand for equality with God. 
If you eat of that, you'll be like him. And so they reached out for it. And this plunges all of mankind into the kingdom of darkness, into Satan's kingdom, where Satan is the ruler of this kingdom and his angels serve him in ranks. And the whole world, 1 John 3.19, 5.19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is who we're talking about. The whole world lies under his sway. And man, men and women born into sin are by default a part of the kingdom of darkness. By default a part of the kingdom of darkness. But right there in Genesis 3, 1 through 15, you've heard me say it many times. There's great news. Because he promised that through Eve, through the, the lineage of Eve, was coming a Savior. One who was going to crush Satan's head in Genesis 3.15. And all who turn to Jesus are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Cosmic warfare. Now, how aware are you? Let me press into you. How aware are you of this cosmic warfare? How aware of you? Think about what I was saying about Jerry Rankin a moment ago. Okay, and he was unaware. He wasn't thinking on these things. He had this Western mindset. And then this something happened that kind of made him start looking at the scriptures about these things. How aware are you of spiritual warfare, the unseen world? Listen to this verse again. Just listen to it. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That you can stand. Did you hear that? Against the schemes that word is methodeum. It's where we get the word methods from. You know Satan has methods. That you might be able to stand against, against the methods of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Don't lick the fact that this is invisible. Cause this to be out of your mind. Don't let the fact that this is invisible cause you to be unaware of their presence. Of a demonic realm. I want you to press hard against your Western rational culture. I'm going to say it again. I want you to press hard in yourself against your Western way of thinking. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2.11. So that we should not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Are you ignorant of his designs? Are you oblivious to spiritual warfare? Would you ever say something like this? Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul says this. He says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. In this culture that we live in, that tends to ignore the invisible and ignore the, the spiritual realm, could you ever see, see yourself or somebody around you saying something like, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. In this culture, the devil and the demonic are almost equal to, we almost make it as if it's synonymous with bad. But that's not true. The devil and, and demons does not just mean bad. It doesn't just mean that. He is a real enemy. They are real enemies with real hatred. And they really are making havoc on the earth. This invisible realm. We're in the midst of a cosmic battle. Two kingdoms in conflict. Two kingdoms in conflict over the glory of God, over the souls of man, and the victory's already been determined by King Jesus. So Christians, all Christians who are here, are you functioning as a soldier in this war, in this cosmic warfare? Are you aware of it? Are you pushing back, are you pushing back against your Western culture, not just ignoring the invisible spiritual realm? Do you believe your Bible or not? Do you believe these words? Have you totally divided the natural from the spiritual? Because the scripture doesn't do that. In our passage today, the scripture will not do that. When you do this, facts of the Bible, like Ephesians 6, 12, that you wrestle, you fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness, they begin to be ignored. They begin to be seen as something that's far off. Have you ever thought that way? You ever read that we fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness and you thought, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like somewhere way over there somewhere. It's like in another country somewhere. Instead of seeing it right here among you, that you're in the midst of it, the unseen world. Are you aware of it? All right. So I want you to think with me. So here's what we're about to do. We're about to head towards this battle. Right here in Mark 5. We're about to read this passage. I want you to see this. In the midst of this cosmic warfare that's laid out, 
these two kingdoms in conflict and you're right in the midst of it here in Mark chapter 5 verse 1 through 20 we're going to get a glimpse into the cosmic war as King Jesus dominates legions of demons he just dominates them we're going to get a glimpse in this battle and a glimpse into this battle should produce at least two things in you it should produce in you an awareness of the spiritual realm in other words, this is not just a symbolic story. This is real life. This should produce in you an awareness of the spiritual realm. And this should produce in you great confidence in King Jesus. You know why? You ever read the Old Testament stories of those valiant men, the, the, uh, the mighty men, David's mighty men? You ever read those stories? Let me give you one snippet of one of those. You tell me what this does to you. What's this make you feel like? 2 Samuel 23, 11 says this. Shema. He was the son of Aji. Shema. The Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. You hear that? Everybody left. They fled the Philistines. But he, Shema, he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. Yes. Second Samuel 23, 20. Listen to this. Benaiah. Benaiah was the son of Jehoi Jehoiada. Benaiah did this. He had killed, he killed two lion-like heroes in Moab. I think that was some bad news he killed, okay? He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a snowy, a midst of a pit on a snowy day. This dude killed a lion. And it says on a snowy day, which I assume maybe it's harder to kill lions on a snowy day. But that's what he did. Listen to this. He killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, an Egyptian. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with his staff. So he goes down, he got a staff, and the Egyptian has the spear. He walks down to the Egyptian, and what does he do? It says, he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. And then you read, okay, and then you read the story we're in. And these stories fire you up about these mighty men, but they are just fighting men. But you see Christ Jesus in Mark chapter 5, he steps up to thousands of demons and they cower in his presence. And that's what we're looking at in Mark chapter 5. Let me read one more verse to you before we go there. Exodus 15 verse 3 and 4. The Lord, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to the battle. Become aware of spiritual warfare and have confidence in Jesus. Let's read it together, verse 1 through 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is a legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed. And had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him. Who had been demon possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat. He who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. 
However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. You see the battle? Plain sense. Jesus and his disciples are traveling across, across the Sea of Galilee. It's just a plain sense. Traveling across the Sea of Galilee. They land on the shores opposite of Galilee. Immediately, a severely demonized man comes charging at them. Okay, Matthew chapter 8 says it was actually two of them. But in Mark and Luke, they only record the chief speaker here, okay? So a severely demonized man comes charging at them. And at some point, the demons realize that they are charging at the son of the most high God. And they quickly crumble and they fall down into the fetal position. And they begin to beg him, don't torment me. Jesus, with victorious superiority, he cast the demons out of the man. The demons go into the herd of the pigs. Jesus breaks the fangs of the wicked and he, and he plucks the victim from his teeth. Do you remember earlier in Mark? Jesus is described as the stronger man. He's the stronger man who goes into Satan's own house, starts taking his stuff away. And right here we have a demonstration of that. His, this supernatural act of divine power and authority by Jesus, it scares the daylights out of the people of the region. And they actually ask Jesus to leave. And so Jesus leaves. He gets back into the boat. And the man who was delivered from darkness begins to beg them, please let me go with you. He couldn't imagine himself being another second away from his deliverer. I want to go with you. And yet Jesus had another mission for him. And instead he sent him back to his home to proclaim the glories of King Jesus. Now, let's begin in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. 5, 1. The faithfulness of Jesus is what you can see right here. 5, 1 says, then they came, look at it with me. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Mine says Gadarenes. Some of your versions says Gerasenes. If you read the account in Matthew 8 and Luke 8, it flip-flops that. Gadarenes, Gerasenes. So what, what is he? What, what's the deal? Well, the deal here is Gerasa was a small village that they landed. That's where they landed, close to Gerasa, this small village. Gadara was a larger city, and the whole region was named by Gadara. And then the larger region than that was the Decapolis. And we'll see that at the end of our section. The Decapolis is 10 cities, including Gerasa and Gadara. It's this big region called the Decapolis. Now, we see the faithfulness of Jesus here, okay? If you, you remember, it says they land in verse one, they land on the other side of the Galilee. Well, why did they go across the Sea of Galilee? Why'd they do that? Well, if you remember back in Mark four, verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. So Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side. Okay. And as they cross over, Dustin taught on the last week, the people get terrified because of a storm, but King Jesus knew about the storm. And he makes it across the sea. He said they're going to the side. He didn't say we're going to go in the middle of the sea and drown. He said we're going to the other side. And he makes it to the other side right here in verse 1. He is faithful to his word. Jesus is faithful to his word. Let me give you a few verses. Numbers 23, 19. Listen. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? He's true to his word. Joshua 21, 45. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken all came to pass he's faithful to his word you can trust his word first kings 8 56 there has not failed one word of all his good promise this is the testimony all throughout scripture that Christ Jesus that God himself is true to his word and so we can trust his words now as we continue looking through this story about who Jesus is and what happened in this battle Go with me to verse 2 through 5. Chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. It's there on your sheet. We're just starting to go verse by verse. 2 through 5. Let me, let me read it again. This is going to describe the demoniac to you. This demonized man. You're about to get the description. Verse 2 through 5. Listen to it. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. 
And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, this man has an unclean spirit. You see it right there? In verse 2, a man with an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit according to verse 2. According to verse 9, he, Jesus asked him his name. He says, Legion, for we are many. So he has a legion. Legion is a Roman military regiment of thousands. Many say 6,000. But here's what you know. Many unclean spirits in this man. Thousands. At least 2,000, right? Because in the story, he's there, the demons are cast out and they go to a herd of pigs. And it says there's 2,000 pigs there. At least 2,000. There's thousands of demons in this man. He has, he has many demons according to verse 12. If you look at Mark 5, 12, it says, So all the demons begged him. All the demons are begging him. A demon equals unclean spirit. Same thing. Now, this man, he's called in verse 15, a demon-possessed man. In verse 15. The word there is daimonizomai, which is, he's a demonized man. This is who this was. This was a demonized man. Many, many unclean spirits on this man. Verse 2. I mean, right there in verse 2. It says what? Met him out of the tombs. Out of the tombs. So this man had come out of the tombs. According to verse 3, he had made his dwelling among the tombs. This is a man tormented by demons, and he's living among the tombs that are cut out in the mountains. He's tormented by demons, and he's living among the dead away from society. Luke 8, 27 says this, Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. At one point, this man is normal with friends. Mark 5, 19 tells us he has friends. He's normal with friends. And then at some point, he seems to lose his mind over demonic takeover, and he eventually begins to live in graveyards among dead people. Can you imagine it? One of your friends, and it seems that they lose their mind, and next thing you know, they're living among the graves. This is a terrible condition this man was in. It also says here in verse 3, no one could bind him, not even with chains. This man had gotten so out of hand that friends, family, neighbors had tried to bind him with chains for their own safety, maybe for the safety of their children, maybe for the man's own safety so he didn't hurt himself. Maybe out of hatred, they bound him up. Some did that. Maybe some out of love trying to protect this man, but they bound him up. That's all they could do was restrain him. And we're not too far removed from that in our culture, right? Before mind-numbing drugs began to be used in great, great abundance, they, they would put them in straitjackets or in padded cells, right? Years ago, that's all they could do was restrain this man. It had gotten so out of hand. Now, why were they not able to restrain this man? Look at verse 4. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. They tried to restrain him with shackles. That means around his feet. They had, they had shackles around his feet and chains on his hand. And he snapped them. He broke them. According to verse 4 right here. This is a supernatural demonic strength that's being displayed. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 19. You remember that in Acts 19? Where a man with an unclean spirit, one man with an unclean spirit, jumps on seven men and whoops them. This is, this is supernatural demonic strength. How terrifying to know that not only was this man full of evil, violent spirits, but also he was supernaturally strong because of it. How terrifying is that? Neither could, verse 4 says, neither could anyone tame him. This man, through demonic takeover, had become like an untamable wild beast. He was a monster, this man. The ESV says no one was strong enough to subdue him in verse four. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, another layer of horror to throw on top of that. If you read the account in Matthew chapter eight, Matthew 8, 28 says that they were exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. The NES says so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. Who knows how many people they had harmed or they had murdered? And everyone was terrified of this demonized man. 
except Jesus. He was not. Verse 5 says, Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and day. It says night and day. So this man is tormented by demons, and now he's tormented by sleeplessness, restlessness. Night and day, he's crying out. The Greek word here means a loud shrill. He's screaming. The NES says he's screaming among the tombs. Can you imagine living in the region and hearing it? What's that screaming coming from the tombs? How do you explain that to your children? When they say, what's that horrible noise coming from the tombs? And it says he's cutting himself right here. This man's tormented with demons, and he begins to gash himself with rocks. How destructive, how destructive the enemy is to those to whom he tries to attack. How destructive. This man was also out of his mind. Whenever Jesus delivered him, you remember when Jesus delivered him, what's one thing they noticed? He was in his right mind, which tells me before he was delivered, this man was out of his mind. He was a maniac. He was a lunatic. He was a crazy, hideous person. And to add on top of all the craziness, he did not wear clothes. He was naked. Right here in, our, right here in Luke chapter 8, verse 27 says he wore no clothes. He wore no clothes. This adds a layer of perversion to the wickedness that's in this man. Let me give you a quick summary of this man. I want you to see who this man is. He's a demonized man taken over by thousands. He's naked and perverted. He's out of his mind, a lunatic, strong enough to break chains. He's untamable, violent and hateful, living among the tombs, screaming out through the night, cutting, cutting himself and ripping his body apart with sharp rocks, maybe a suicide attempt. He's a deranged man who speaks to Jesus. And the words that come out of his mouth are actually words of demons. This is a horrible, horrible condition. Go with me to verse six and seven. As you see this demonic man, the demonic is about to approach Jesus. Verse 6 and 7. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. And he worshipped him. He fell down. He worshipped him. Fell down. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So this demoniac, he begins to charge at Jesus. As he had probably done many times before, as he sought to harm somebody or chase them away, he begins to charge at Jesus. Remember, exceedingly fierce, exceedingly violent. And as the demoniac runs at him with his violent hatred, with his supernatural strength, he's suddenly halted by the realization that he's looking at the Son of God. And he quivers. He cowers before King Jesus. He shrivels up like a whipped pup. In a moment. That's what it says in verse 6. He ran at him, but at some point, he fell down. He fell down before King Jesus. The demoniac, he, he lets out this shrill, this loud shrill. And he says this, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high? I implore you, do not torment me. They begin to beg Jesus. These demons begin to beg Jesus, don't torment me. They're begging him. Let me give you a side note here. Everybody in Mark chapter 5 is begging Jesus. The demons beg him in verse 7 and 12. In verse 17, you're going to see the people begging him. He uses the word begging him to leave. In verse 18, you see the delivered demoniac begging Jesus, let me go with you. He uses the word begging. And even to get ahead of the game, verse 23 shows a ruler of the synagogue begging Jesus to come heal his daughter. There must be something incredibly special about this man. Everybody begging King Jesus. So here's these demons, and here's what they say again. They say, I implore you by God. Anything sound funny about that to you? I implore the demons. Legions of demons say, I implore you by God. Did the demons just beg Jesus in the name of God? What do we take from this? We take from this, you have got to be bad to the bone. If you just stand in the presence of demons, they begin to pray in the name of God. You got to be a bad man. The demons say, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. What does it mean, torment them? Why, why are the demons saying, don't torment me? 
If you read the Matthew 8 account, it adds a phrase. It says, have you come to torment us before the time? Torment us before the time, which tells us there's a time coming when they're in. It will be complete. It will be done. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen to Jude 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved, listen to the, the end. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There's a judgment coming when they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it will be complete. Church of Jesus Christ, be astonished. Be astonished by the raw power and the authority of King Jesus in these verses. A whole legion of powerful, powerful demonic spirits just cowered in his presence. Be astonished. See this powerful display of the glory of Jesus and repeat this with King David. King David says this in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may arise against me, in this I will be confident. Jesus is the head of all principalities and powers. And all demonic forces cower in his presence and they tremble at his voice. King Jesus. Go with me to verse 8 through 12. Now what you're going to see here is legions... Cowering response to King Jesus's commands. Okay, now I want to explain this because some people have taken this little section, verse eight through twelve, and they take it to mean that Jesus somehow was having problems casting these demons out, which is false. Look at it with me again. Verse eight says this: "For he said to them, to him, you see that? For he said to him, that connector. For Jesus said to him means this. Here's the order." Jesus says to him, come out of him, you unclean spirit, verse 8. And what's the response? The response is not, no, I'm not coming out. The response is, don't torment me before the time. Then Jesus asked him his name, and he says what? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then the demons begin to beg him, please don't send us into the abyss, but instead send us into the swine. This is not Jesus having a problem casting out demons. This is Jesus saying, jump, and they say, how high? They're cowering in the presence of Jesus. Who can this be? Who can this be that with authority he commands the unclean spirits and they come out? Now, here they are. Okay, so they're begging Jesus. If you read verse 10, they're begging Jesus not to send them out of the country. You see that? Why would they say, don't send us out of the country? Well, for one, they had established a beachhead there. They had established a stronghold in that area, and they didn't want to leave. Possibly. But let me say this. Luke 8 adds this to it, okay? Luke 8 says this. They begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. So, so don't send us out of this country, or also, Luke 8, don't send us into the abyss. They were scared to death. Scared to death to be sent out of that region into the abyss, which according to Revelation 20 is the bottomless pit where Satan will be held until he's cast into the lake of fire. He's begging them, don't send me there, okay? And then the demons begin to ask, in our verse here, the demons begin to ask instead to be allowed to be, to be cast into to pigs that are a short distance away. A herd of pigs. In fact, a herd of 2,000 pigs. Now, Here's the question that always arises. Why pigs? And my response usually is, doesn't matter. <laughs> but since it's always a question, people say, why are these pigs? I'm going to give you a few options. First off, I'm not sure. Thankfully, I don't have that much insight into why demons love to do what they do. And I'm thankful for that. But let me give you some options. And my last option will be what I really think, okay? First option is this. It shows us the horrors of hell. These demons would rather go into 2,000 pigs than to the abyss, to eternal hell. Let me give you another one, another option. To judge the pig farmers. Okay? See, these people, see, Jesus has landed 
in, in this region, okay? This region of the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region, okay? They're in a Gentile region. And part of the reason why you know that is because there's 2,000 pigs there. And Jews don't farm pigs, according to the law, okay? So they're in this Gentile region. So maybe he did it to judge these pig farmers for, for uh, having these unclean pigs that, that they had. They heard of whole 2,000 of them. All right, let me give you another option. To remind Americans who get their priorities ridiculously out of order that human souls are more important than animals. I might be stretching that one. I am stretching that one. But don't do that. Ultimate reason for the pigs. Okay, here it is. Ultimate reason why the pigs, okay, I think is to demonstrate visibly that he just dominated thousands of demons. You understand that? Like Jesus, asked, okay, why did Jesus ask him his name? Imagine you're the disciples there, okay? You've just seen Jesus speak to, he just rebuked a storm and it shut up, okay? He just did that and they're standing all going, who can this be who commands the winds and waters and they obey him? And they're amazed, they're amazed, right? And can you imagine, then they walk up and here comes this man. And they can't see the invisible world. They can't see it. But Jesus gives them an audible. He says, he says, what's your name? And they say, legions for we're many. So now the disciples know there's thousands of them in there. There's thousands of them in this man. And then they get a visual. Not only an audible, we are many, but also a visual as they see demons going to 2,000 pigs and they run off into the sea and drown. King Jesus just dominated thousands of demons and they had evidence to see it see that that's what i think go with me to verse 13 and 14 this is where we're going to see the demons leave the man verse 13 and at once at once jesus gave them permission then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine there were about two thousand, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea so those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and, and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Plain, okay, plain sense here is what? Plain sense is Jesus gave them permission. You can go. They go out into the pigs. The, the pigs start acting nuts like the man was acting. They drown into the sea and it scares the death out of these men and they flee and they go tell everybody what happened. Okay? Verse 13 and 14. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, first, can you just imagine 2,000 pigs? Can you see, not a hundred pigs, that'd be a lot, okay, just pigs. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs? Can you imagine that? Get that in your brain. Now, can you imagine 2,000 pigs going nuts and violently running into the sea and drowning themselves? Can you see that? Wait, I mean, they didn't line up on the shore and all jumping at the same time, okay? I'm talking, <laughs> sorry, hundred men. Can you imagine 2,000 wave after wave, like the ones in the back see the ones in the front go in and they don't stop. They have gone nuts and they're just plunging into the sea. Can you imagine how crazy this would have been? This would have been a horrible scene. Okay. It says they drowned. They didn't get in there, wall around a bit and get out. They drowned. They killed themselves. They had gone crazy here. The way the demonized man was acting, now these pigs are acting this way. 2,000 of them and they drown in the sea. What do you think the after effects were of that event? 2,000 dead pigs in the, in the Sea of Galilee. Now actually, there's actually a modern day event in 2013 that actually happens similar. No demons involved that we know of. But similar, 2013 in China, close to Shanghai, there was a river where somebody, 2,000 or actually 2,000 plus, pigs were dumped off illegally into a river. And they were dead. And they began to float down the river. And the people, you should have seen it all over the news, the people start freaking out. They're contacting the government saying, is our water going to be okay to drink? I mean, you imagine the effect this would have had in the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine the effect the attention this would have grabbed from the people of the region. They live off of this water. Now, how would you expect these people to react? How would you react to seeing that happen? Fear? Well, how did these people react? It says they fled in verse 14 and they ran away scared. They were so astonished, so fearful that they went and told it to all the people around and they came to see. Which brings us to verse 15. Verse 15 to 17. 
Now we're going to see the people afraid and they begin to beg Jesus to leave. Verse 15. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed demon and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. So all the people from the surrounding region, they want to come see what happened. And they see the, the formerly demonized man there and he's clothed and he's, right, he's in his right mind and they are scared. And they begin to ask Jesus to actually leave their region. They see the dead pigs out in the Sea of Galilee and they begin to ask Jesus to leave their region. Now, they had been afraid of the demonized man, right? Matthew 8, 28, it says no one could pass that way. No one could pass that way. The account of Matthew 8 says no one would go that way. They were afraid of the demonized man. But now the demons have been cast out and he's sitting there calm. And then he's in his right mind. He's okay. So why does verse 15 say, and they were afraid? Why does it say they were still afraid? The account in Luke 8 says this. It says they were seized with great fear. The demons already been cast out, and here they are, seized with great fear. The words mega, like Dustin talked about last week, mega fear. These people are seized with mega fear, according to Luke 8:37. Why? Why? Do you remember the storm? The event just prior to this, they were afraid of this hurricane-like storm. You remember that? But after Jesus calmed it down, just to be in the presence of Jesus, it says they were more afraid. They were greatly afraid. They were mega afraid. Well, in the same way, legions of demons whom they were scared of been cast out, but they're now standing in the presence of Jesus and they are full of fear, mega fear. What should that make us do? We've got to tear down in our mind a false representation of Jesus as a weak, sensitive, sweet little precious Jesus. This has got to go out of the mind because it's not right. The disciples were more afraid in the presence and of the power of Jesus than they were to be caught in a boat in the midst of a hurricane. And these people were more afraid of the power and presence of Jesus than they were of whole legions of demons. It's more frightening that the Almighty is in your boat than the storm outside the boat. And it's more frightening to have Jesus in your neighborhood than legions of demons. You see this? Mega fear and mega trembling is the only proper response to one who rebukes storms into submission and who speaks and calls demons to bow down. It's the only proper response. Now, I do want you to think about this, though. So it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God, right? It's a fearful thing, according to Hebrews 10.31. But listen, in this passage, you've got, you've got these people cowering in fear, and yet what, what does the delivered man do? What does he do? He says, I want to go with you. Isn't that crazy? He got people cowering in fear over this man. And yet you got this other man that says, I want to go with you. That is awesome. You've got, this is what you have. You've got Jesus is so powerful that fear and trembling is the only proper response. And yet he's so good that we desire to be with him all at the same time. It's like fearful delight. It's like joyful trembling. And that's what we see in this passage. We see the same thing in Revelation 1.17. We see fear producing power of Jesus in Revelation 1.17. And we see joy producing love of Jesus, care of Jesus in Revelation 1.17. Listen to it. Revelation 1.17 says, and when I saw him, this is John seeing Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Fear producing power of Jesus. But listen to this. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. The joy producing, loving care of Jesus colliding in this verse. And you see the same thing in our passage here. Go me to verse 18. <clears throat> verse 18 through 20. We're going to see Jesus send out his first missionary. Let's read it. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim it in Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So Jesus starts getting back in the boat. 
This man says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. And he sends him away to go preach Christ into, into to his home and among his friends. He obeys Jesus in this. So in this passage, we see Jesus sending out his first missionary. He sends this, out, this man out before the 12. That doesn't happen in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He sends this, out, this man out before the 70, right? He sends this man out. But this man, he didn't have any formal training, right? That should be a good reminder to us. Jesus sends out before the 12. He sends out to preach a Gentile, an untrained Gentile with a really bad past. And this is who he sends out. Jesus, he gets to this region. When Jesus gets to this region, this man is a naked maniac who lives in the tombs, cuts himself, and howls at the moon. But in the same afternoon, he's preaching Christ to his old friends. Tell me that would not have been an unexpected visit. He shows up, the naked maniac, and now he's preaching Christ. If you're here, and we spoke to this the other night in my house to John, actually. If you're here and you're struggling with this thought, maybe God would not use me to preach Christ or to help other people because I've got such a bad past. Well, don't think that way anymore. What about this man? What about this demoniac? This man full of legions and Christ uses him. He uses him right after he's delivered. Now, what did Jesus tell him to say? You see it in red letters right there in verse 19. Jesus told him to say this, go home to your friends. He, said, he says, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. So go preach Jesus. Go tell him what great things he's done for you. Tell him about the compassion he's had on you. And not only does this man go and tell his friends, but it says in verse 20, he obeys Jesus and he actually goes into the Decapolis, into that big region I told you about, the 10 cities. And he proclaims Christ there. He went from maniac to missionary in a moment. From maniac to missionary in a moment. What was, was this man's ministry effective? Well, look at verse 20. And all marvel. Last three words. And all marvel. If you keep reading ahead into Mark chapter 7, verse 31 and 32, Mark 7, 31 and 32, you've got Jesus comes back to the Decapolis. And whenever he gets there, he, people are, they're bringing people that, that, that they, want, they want him to heal their friends and their family. And they start bringing them to Jesus. How'd they know? Seems like this man's ministry was effective. Let's go to application. I got three quick points of application for you. Application number one of this passage. Do not be ignorant of spiritual warfare. Don't be ignorant. Wake up to this reality. Admit that you may have been influenced by your Western culture that ignores the things that you cannot see. Every single writer in the New Testament speaks to the invisible spiritual realm. They speak to our enemy and, and spiritual warfare. It's all over the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all over it. Jesus casting out demons, facing the enemy, all those sort of things. It's all over Acts. We see Paul. We see Paul casting out a demon. We see him describing salvation as being delivered from the power of Satan to God. So it's all over Acts. Paul speaks of these things. I've read many verses from Paul speaking about this invisible spiritual realm. Peter speaks of these things. Listen to 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. How silly for us to ignore a roaring lion. And yet we have to admit that we do. James speaks of the invisible spiritual realm. James in James 4, 7, it does not say ignore the devil and he will flee from you. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This word resist means to set yourself against, to stand against, to oppose. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let your fearlessness, let your fearlessness in regards to the demonic realm and spiritual warfare, let it be due to your confidence in Jesus and not due to unbelief. Let me say that again. Let your fearlessness, tell me if you understand this, let your fearlessness as it concerns the spiritual warfare, demonic realm, as, let your fearlessness, let it be rooted in confidence in Jesus and not be because of unbelief. 
There's two avenues. There's two paths for you to be fearless in what we're talking about. One is to be unbelieving. You don't believe it's even there. And you're deceived. You're deceived if you think this way. But it'll make you fearless, but you will be deceived. Don't land there. What should produce your fear and fearlessness? Well, these things create fear, of course. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, powerful demons, doesn't that create fear? But then extinguish it with confidence in King Jesus. Look what he did in this passage. Let your fearlessness be rooted in confidence in Jesus. Which brings me to my second application. Have great confidence in Jesus. In this passage, Mark 5, 1 through 20, we see Jesus making a public spectacle of demons. He puts them to an open shame. He does this in Mark chapter 5. And so it should encourage us that as we face this battle to have great confidence in Jesus. Let me add another layer on that. Let me add another layer on that. Jesus really made a public spectacle of them. I mean, he really put them to an open shame at the cross. Listen to Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15 says this. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. He disarmed them. He put them to an open shame. He triumphed over them in the cross. So how did Jesus put them to an open shame in the cross? Well, according to this verse, verse 15, it says he disarmed them. He took away their weapons. He just took them away. Like, like the David's mighty man, right? Who, who wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. He took his weapons away. Our, in, our ancient enemy holds over us sin and death. He holds over us sin and death, accusing us day and night of being guilty of sin and therefore deserving death. He leads us to eternal death where we will never be set free. But Jesus, the captain of our salvation, snatches both of these weapons out of his hands at the cross. Our sin laid on Christ Jesus so he can speak to us in our sin. Satan can speak to us in our sin no more. Our eternal death laid on Christ Jesus. He took our death for us. So we'll be scared of death no more. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. The Son of God took on flesh and blood. Why? That through death, that through death, this means at the cross, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil can hold death over our heads no more. So Jesus treats the devil and his unclean spirits like little children and takes their weapons away, making a public spectacle of them, putting them to an open shame, triumphing over them in it at the cross. The victory's already won. Christ Jesus says it is finished at the cross. Therefore, we fight not for victory, but from victory in Christ. It's done. Don't be afraid. Trust in Jesus. These things can incite fear. If you don't have Christ, you should be very fearful of a demonic spiritual realm. But you don't have to be afraid. Just let these verses serve you. Listen, 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers. Do you hear it? Not angels, not principalities, not powers, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do not be afraid. Trust in Christ. Have great confidence in Christ. Third application. This is it. Go and tell. Go and tell. I get it from Mark 5, 19, where Jesus said that. He told him to go. And he told him to tell these people the wondrous things that Jesus had done. And then he said, it says in verse 20 that he departed. So he went. He obeyed. And he began to proclaim in all the Decapolis. Go and tell. This section of scripture is an awesome reminder to us of the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the nations. Why do you say that? 
Why is this section so important? It's an important reminder is to take the gospel to the nations. Why? Because Jesus right here. Now, this is, this is the Jesus that, that told the Gentile woman that his main focus of his ministry was with the people of Israel. And yet he peeks his head in on this Gentile region. He just kind of peeks his head in here. And he goes on one of the most or the most powerful short-term mission trip you have ever seen. He, he takes this demonized man and he delivers him and sends him out. And the ten cities are affected because of it. Sends him out to ten cities. This is a powerful reminder of God's work among the nations and the unreached. Now, do you realize that one of Satan's ultimate aims is to stop this in your life? One of Satan's ultimate aims is to hinder the spread of the gospel to the nations. That's one of his ultimate aims. Matthew 24, 14 says, says this gospel is going to be preached in all the nations to all the world. Then when will come and that it doesn't end well for Satan. OK, and so he wants to hinder this spread of the gospel. So be aware that every time you seek to go and tell the wondrous works of Jesus, every time you seek to go and tell it in your neighborhood, in your job or for anywhere, for that matter, you will be opposed by the enemy. Be aware that every time you try to get involved of the spread of the glorious gospel to the unreached nations of the earth, you will be opposed by the enemy. Think, think of his methods. Don't be ignorant of his methods. Think of the many hindrances that come up in your life as it comes to spreading the gospel here and to the nations. Think of the hindrances that come up. Do you really think that those are all just natural hindrances? Or do you think there's an enemy involved? You are in a supernatural battle. And there are multitudes of evil spirits that are opposed to your efforts to obey the Great Commission. Multitudes of evil spirits opposed to you. Do not say, well, God can't use an untrained person like me. Why? Because God took this man. The first missionary he sends out is an untrained man with a very bad past. Don't say that. Don't say God can't use someone with your kind of background. God used a naked maniac who's howling at the moon and cutting himself. And that afternoon, preaching Jesus. It's awesome. Be encouraged that God used this man and God used him effectively. And God can use you and God can use you effectively to spread his gospel. In this spiritual battle, are you actively functioning as a soldier, a fearless soldier of Christ Jesus? Are you functioning as a civilian, unaware of the spiritual warfare, uninvolved in the battle, or, or as a fearless soldier of Jesus? Are you a terrified soldier of Jesus? You're deceived. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Christ Jesus, he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Function as a fearless soldier of King Jesus. And let me end with these words from Martin Luther. And we'll pray. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does, do you ask who that might be? Christ Jesus is he. The Lord Sabbath his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the head of all principalities and powers and all our confidence can be in you. God, open our eyes like you did the man and you opened his eyes and he could see chariots of fire, Lord, that he couldn't see before. Open the eyes of our heart, God. Help us to see. Make us aware of the war going on around us and help us to fight as your humble soldiers, God. Make us effective for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.